Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 10th, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Even musicians who we celebrate for their precocity, like Yo-Yo Ma, what's little known and hardly ever spoken is that he went through the typical so-called sampling period of instruments where he tried a couple sort of gained a general knowledge and decided which ones he didn't like. He just went through it a lot faster than mm-hmm. most musicians do. That's David Epstein. He was on the podcast in 2016 to talk about his book, The Sports Gene. His new book is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I was in Washington, D.C. recently where Epstein lives, and he was kind enough to meet me to talk about the book. So what is Range? Range is, well, it's the title of my book, of course, but uh, it's a word that I thought expressed the idea of of breadth, um, breadth of experience, uh, a diversity of tools that someone brings to a problem, just a sort of personal characteristic of uh, being broad in the way that you approach the world and you approach problems. And your book has so many examples in it of the problems with hyperspecialization versus a broader outlook. And you do deal in the book with the, the issue of whether you're cherry-picking stuff, mm-hmm. and you're really not. There's, there's so much data that shows that for certain kind of problems, being a generalist is better. For right. other kinds, being a specialist is better. Right. That's right. Right. And I would say one of the challenges, I think, for me will be to differentiate generalist from dilettante, right? Like when people hear generalist, they might think someone who's just not that good or not that interested in anything. And I think the kind of range that I sort of advocated that I think data supports in the book for certain domains um, is someone who's very interested and has had meaningful experience in a lot of things rather than someone who's just never delved, delved into anything at all. Um, and like you said, I discuss, that's not always the best way to go, but for a lot of the more complicated, uh, less predictable, and I would say less automatable, um, domains that people want to work and learn in, this breadth is indispensable and specialization, I think can actually be detrimental and even dangerous in some cases. You have a statistic in the book. I think it was that Nobel prize winners are 22 times, Nobel prize winning scientists, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 22 times more likely to have a broad range of interests that you wouldn't necessarily associate, you know, music, theater, they're amateur actors, or, yes. they, or they're, you know, they, they have all kinds of very uh, different hobbies from somebody who's just in the lab 24 hours a day. Yeah, poets, magicians, glassblowers, all these, and not just things that they kind of like, but hobbies that they spend a significant amount of time on. And sometimes they'll change those hobbies, but they are 22 times more likely um, than other scientists to have these serious hobbies that seem to have nothing to do with what they're doing. And scientists who are not Nobel winners but are inducted into national academies are also much more likely than normal scientists to have serious hobbies, often with an aesthetic aspect to it, like something in the arts or humanities. And there's a quote I loved from um, the Santiago Ramón y Cajal, the so-called father of neuroscience, the Spanish Nobel laureate, where he says something like, he's alluding to the the people that he thinks who go on to kind of define and help solve new problems are these people who have all these hobbies. And he says, from afar, it looks like they are diluting their energies when in fact they are reinforcing and strengthening them. And his argument was that all these interests sort of end up uh, informing the person's approach to a problem. And so from the outside, it looks like time-wasting. But to the person themselves, 
it, it leads to them being much more powerful and much more differentiated from their colleagues. Yeah, it's, uh, it reminds me of the, you know, the uh, stereotypical kind of story about they got the idea in the shower. Archimedes, you know, he got the idea in the bathtub when he saw something. He wasn't necessarily thinking about working on the problem anymore. What Ramoni Cajal said comes up in so many different phrases in in the book. So a, a psychologist who studied creative problem solving named Howard Gruber, he called it network of enterprise, uh, which basically means the same thing. It's that these um, problem solvers like Darwin, is he, he does an interesting study of Darwin, and he says, well, when he gets sort of stuck on one thing, he just turns to some other interest until it sparks something for the problem he was stuck on, he comes back around. And he just sort of does that ad infinitum. And so there's several points in the book where I pick up on different phrases that, that researchers of creativity uh, use to describe these kind of multifarious interests of creative problem solvers. But they're all kind of alluding to the same thing, which is that they have a lot of things that they're interested in going on. When they get stuck on one, they turn to another, and it ends up informing something they were stuck on. And they just keep going around and around like that. One of the things I like about working on multiple projects at the same time is that I can fulfill my desire for procrastination <laughs> and still that's, get something done. No, that that's totally true. I mean, again, looking, that's like exactly like what, what Darwin was doing. He'd yeah. go down one stream, he'd get stuck, maybe because he was a scientific generalist, and so he would need someone else to go give him information. So he had 200 and some pen pals he kept up with, and he would get stuck and he would write to them for some information. And while he's waiting for the stuff that he can't do himself, he goes off and does something else. Or he gets bored with the one thing he was a specialist in, barnacles, in one of his manuscripts, he writes, um, he wanted to do several more installments, but he writes, I am unwilling to spend more time on the topic because yeah. he just gets bored with it, right? And sometimes he gets bored with stuff and you see it tail off and he just moves to something else and maybe he'll come back. But it, it kind of allows him, because he self-describes as lazy, basically. Yeah. But clearly when he's interested in something, he goes he goes all in on it. So he'll procrastinate the stuff he doesn't really like and, and move on to something else fruitful. And that pattern just, you know, he documented it so well in his diaries, but that pattern seems to show up just as much in, like, technological inventors today. I have the, uh, the Ramona Cajal quote here. To him who observes them from afar... It appears as though they are scattering and dissipating their energies, while in reality they are channeling and strengthening them. And, and so he says in, in this book where he wrote that, he says in the section where he gives that, that, where he writes that passage, he's saying these are the people you want to look for who will become the innovators, the serial innovators. These are the traits. They look like this from afar. And then later in range, I write about the work, modern work of a woman named Abby Griffin, a professor who studies what she calls serial innovators, people who make these contributions, usually but not always in some form of technology um, or healthcare, who over and over make these huge contributions. And she says the same things. At the end of the book, she gives all this sort of you know, objective data of what she's found and then sort of takes a break from being um, you know, more staid and just giving her data in the end of the book to say, dear HR managers you're going to miss these people because they're going to look like they haven't been climbing the ladder one rung at a time. Their LinkedIn page is going to show all these disparate interests. And these are the people that Ramoni Cajal was talking about, but they may not look the best to like an HR recruiter who has like a very defined slot. So she says just, it's like the same thing as Ramoni Cajal said, just like into a more modern context, basically. You you have a lot of examples and some of them are in the sciences of people who 
are very slow to get started. And it looks like they're going to be hopelessly behind always. And given a, a long enough time span, and we're not talking about 3,000 years, we're talking about just a couple of decades or even shorter yeah. because we're in a, you know, a human lifetime. Uh, they're completely outpacing their, their peers. You know, it's, you reminded me, this isn't in your book, but it's something I always would say to people. You know, Letterman's entire writing staff went to Harvard. Letterman went to Ball State. That's funny. I didn't know that. And I, I'm not saying that it's bad to go to Harvard, but I think Letterman, with he had a unique background, and that is what made him who he was and different from, you know, he, he would use all these smart Harvard, funny Harvard lampoon people, but he did something with it because he was different from all of them. That's really interesting. But we are... You know, and so at a certain point, you would have looked at him and said, oh, he's behind all these, you know, bajillions of people who would want to have his spot, who at a certain point looked like their trajectory was heading in that direction much more so than his would have, right? But we're, we're what I call in the book the cult of the head start, basically meaning we're obsessed with precocity, right? Like, it's unimaginable for us that what looks like this, when we take a cross-sectional sample of where someone is today, that this isn't representing some kind of stable trajectory, but that's that's the fact of the matter. In fact, yeah, I talk a little bit in range about the end of history illusion, which is which is this this psychological finding that we're not even any good at judging our own trajectory, much less that of other other people. So that the end of history illusion, this finding that people always recognize that they've changed and things haven't gone how they thought in the past, but now they're done changing. Like now they're a finished product. And it leads to all these crazy findings like if you ask people how much they would pay for tickets to see their favorite band, their current favorite band in 10 years, the average is like $129. And if you ask how much they would pay to see today their favorite band from 10 years ago, it's like $80, right? <laughs> We're really bad at judging trajectory. And so what what looks what our obsession with precocity when we look like someone is on the straight path, it turns out that's very very rarely the case. Yeah, it's it's something I say to people the uh they hear what I do, and I say, yeah, ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to be a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, it didn't exist. Right. And it's totally surprising. I mean, I cited, I can't remember the exact statistic I cited in the book, but the it's something like, it depends on the major, on whether someone will go into a career that's related to their major a little bit, but not that much. Yeah. It, even among, you know, the STEM fields, it's like 70% will go on to something unrelated yeah. to their major. When, when I first would mention that statistic to people, they'd say like, oh, well, because not everyone can be a philosopher, right? But if you look at the STEM majors too, it's only a little bit different that they're also going into things. And in many cases, that's probably because their desires and interests, for one, were limited by the menu of experiences they'd had in their life. But also a lot of those jobs don't even exist when they start deciding like what they're studying. You know, the things that there was no, there was no job for the science writer at Sports Illustrated when I went in there as a fact checker, just like there was no job for podcaster. I feel like we just don't, we underestimate the amount things will change. You're never going to be doing one thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite sort of snippets for, I don't know if it'll be the favorite part for readers, but that stuck with me personally because I still pretty much like don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. Right. Um, was this, this phrase from this woman, Herminia Ibarra, who sort of studies how people successfully change careers later on in life. And her phrase was, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is that she, she's very critical of a lot of these 
kind of best-selling personality tests that companies take, like even strength finders and stuff like that, because it turns out that people's, if they repeat those quizzes a couple years apart, they aren't the same person anymore. So you're taking a cross-section of what you know now and what you're good at now and acting as if it's some kind of unchangeable aspect of who you are, and that turns out it's not the case. And so what she means by we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, is that all these personality, this this immense industry of, you know, career self-help and all this says introspect about who you are and then follow that. And when she says actually the way that people learn who they are is by setting up experiments. They dip their toe into some interest. They they learn a little bit about something. They say, this is what, this is where I am now. This is a skill I'd like to examine. These are the opportunities in front of me right now. And maybe a year from now I'll change. And that's actually the way that people triangulate themselves to to an area where they alone uh, can kind of succeed uniquely. You talk about the tiger mom. Mm-hmm. What's her name again? I Amy Chua. Right. And she had the kids start on the violin when they were basically well, tiny. Well, one of the kids, she, so on the first page of her book, she gives like the, the, the bullet points basically for why she says Chinese parents raise so stereotypically successful children. And she lays out the rules she has for her kids. And one of them is that the, her daughters must play uh, either piano or violin and may not play any instrument other than piano or violin. And the older one gets piano. So the other one gets violin. And I should say she's, she's very introspective in the book. I think in some ways she's self-critical mm-hmm. and, and doesn't get kind of credit for that. But you know, and I say that because later on in the book when her apparently extremely talented violinist daughter says to her, you picked it, not me, and decides not to do it anymore, she says like, gosh, I wonder if it would have been different if I hadn't done that. And it, it falls perfectly in line with a study of uh, musicians who don't get to choose their instrument. Mm-hmm. So e- even even musicians who we celebrate for their precocity like Yo-Yo Ma – What's little known and hardly ever spoken is that he went through the typical so-called sampling period of instruments where he tried a couple, sort of gained a general knowledge and decided which ones he didn't like. He just went through it a lot faster than Mm -hmm. most musicians do. But if you look at aggregate data of students in like world-class music academies, you see that the kids deemed of exceptional ability by the instructors will have practiced way less in a way less structured environment by the time they get into the academy, but they will have invested more equally across a number of instruments. So they will have practiced more on like their third instrument and will often learn a fourth or fifth, mm-hmm. even though they've accumulated less hours overall, whereas the students deemed of average ability were more likely to have started on something. If they wanted to switch, someone will say like, no, you'll get behind, and they end up plateauing, basically. And they've practiced more and had more lessons. And you don't know what you're going to pick up from one instrument that you'll apply to the other one, even though it may not be any in any curriculum or textbook anywhere it's just something that is unique to your experience with it and i think that's like one of the main patterns that recurs in the book is whether it's athletes there are a million ways to get good at something Mm -hmm. like there's no you know but whether it's but what is the norm is the question i was asking what's the what's the most typical and is it the mozart way or the tiger way the mozart way which is not the way it's been portrayed but we can we can talk that's something i cut out of the book but we can talk about that but whether it's the athletes who are going to go on to become elite, the musicians who are going to go on to become elite, uh, comic book creators who are going to go on to become the best, uh, tech inventors who are going to go on to become the best, they spend time doing this sampling where they gain sort of a wide view uh, 
of things, what they are good at, what they might be interested in, and they delay specialization. And they will, to some degree, focus later, but they end up having all these sort of tangential insights that set them apart from from their peers. And so in every one of those fields, you see this unusual pattern where people jump out to a lead who are very specialized and then get caught and surpassed. Yo-Yo Ma's sister, by the way, is a terrific violinist, but she's that she doesn't do that for a living. She's a physician. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's a professor at, uh, or she was the last time I looked, at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard her play there because she does do... Pretty neat family. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, even in uh, journal publications within science, you have this really fascinating business uh, toward the end of the book about a lot of papers that appear in what we would think of as lesser journals. You know, the big journals, everybody knows, science, nature. It's very prestigious to publish in them. But, uh, and they get cited, if they get cited at all, relatively quickly after the publication. But some of the biggest papers, many of, I mean, statistically, over the long run, the papers that are published in the lesser journals, because they weren't deemed to be uh, you know, everybody's going to first try to get into science and nature and they get rejected. So then they publish somewhere else. And in the long run, those get cited more, which means they had a bigger impact on the field. Yeah, this was a surprise to me, for sure. I mean, cause I was a science grad student. And of course, you wanted to get into science or nature or cell or whatever it was. Everything else was like a fallback, basically. Um, and so I was surprised to see this this research on the science of science, basically, that found that indeed in science and nature, there's like an early explosion of citations of a paper that gets in. Um, they're also much more likely to be retracted from those journals eventually. But the papers that, so if you look at the first one or three year time horizon, papers that go into science and nature have a much bigger impact. But if you extend that time horizon to 15 years, then suddenly these papers that were published in much smaller journals, totally ignored, end up being way more likely to be in the top 1% of the most influential papers and to be like something that really alters a field. And and what one of the reasons that the researchers who did this work suggest that those papers end up in smaller journals is because they're interdisciplinary and they contain what's called novel combinations of knowledge. So they cite uh, journals that have never appeared before in the references of another paper. And so often they go to reviewers who are not interdisciplinary um, don't really know what it's talking about. They end up in a smaller journal, and there are so-called sleeping beauties where they don't get attention out of the gate, but they end up altering a field compared to the ones that get in the, the highest profile journals, uh, which sort of blow out of the gate and then then more often kind of peter out. Yeah, they're quarter horses and not uh, not built for the long yeah, run. Yeah, Let's talk about the comic book example. That was really fascinating. Yeah, I, lo- I love this study. This was a study of... Um, what makes good comic book creators, basically. And a creator can be an individual or it can be a team of artists and writers. And one of the things I thought was unique about this study was that when I read a lot of studies about it, it tracked the commercial value of particular comic books. And one of the things that allowed the researchers to do that often isn't the case with like research on companies is to track the value up and down. So they didn't end up with this like extreme, you know, survivor bias, basically. And they made, I think it was seven hypotheses about what would cause comic creators, again, whether those were individuals or teams, to be better on average and to be more likely to make a blockbuster. 
And they were wrong about almost all of their hypotheses. So the resources of the publisher was actually a little bit like negatively correlated with with how good they were and or certainly with how likely they were to create a create a blockbuster. Um, their years of experience was not predictive of how good they would be on average. The The number of repetitions they had had creating comic books was not indicative of their likelihood of, of innovating or of being good on average. In fact, it might actually work against you. You, you start to just recycle the same stuff. When it was really high, it, yeah. it actually worked really against them. And that could have been either because they were recycling or because they were overworked. It, it was hard to tell yeah. from the data, maybe both. Um, and what did predict whether someone would be better on average and more innovative was the number of different genres that they had worked in in comics. So they the researchers divided this up into 22 different genres, you know, uh, fantasy, crime, uh, nonfiction, adult, et, et cetera, mystery. Um, and you wanted diverse genre experience. And, and ideally, you wanted it in an individual. So Let's say you had an individual that only worked in one genre. You'd rather have, or only worked in two genres or three, you'd rather have a team that had, by platoon, worked in more genres to bring their experience together. But at four genres, an individual who had more than worked in more than four genres was better than a team who had the same experience by platoon, who could collect the same experience. So if you could choose between a team that had worked in seven genres among themselves or an individual that had worked in seven genres alone, you wanted the individual. They would be better on average and more likely to innovate. So the, the researchers titled this paper Superman or the Fantastic Four. And they said, you want the one individual, the Superman, who has this diverse genre experience if you can, but if you can't get them, then you should try to assemble this very diverse team, basically. And presumably, the reason the uh, individual is better is because all the connections are in the one brain to be available to be made, whereas in the teams, you know, somebody might not say something that would have sparked the connection. That's right. So that, that the research has suggested that this show, the pattern shows that there's clearly process loss when you bring together people with diverse genre experience. It's good, but it's not as good as if they were actually one brain. So all of this is so fascinating. And I, you know, this is just me personally because I did a lot of different things, and I, I think it's a fun life. Yeah, that's a fun, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to do, to to be, and just, you know, I was reading your book, and I thought, you know, I'm so lucky. I, I'm never bored. I find everything fascinating. Yeah. So, like, you know, one of my favorite things is you pick up a copy of, like, The New Yorker, and you're suddenly just mesmerized by an article in a field you didn't know you would have any interest in. And, you know, I think it just, it just makes everything more fun and interesting. But, but, okay, yeah. I was just going to say that, that when I interviewed some, you know, the academics in the book, sometimes we would talk about this just personally, and they, some of them I think were disappointed because they thought they were getting into this kind of life of the mind where they would explore and found that they were just told to specialize, specialize, specialize. One, one of the kind of, um, you know, trailblazers in information theory, Don Swanson, who I mentioned in the book, I contacted his daughter because he'd passed away because he was very worried about excessive specialization. And when I contacted her, she was at a conference that was about problems with over-specialization. 
and I asked her how she felt about being so specialized. I'd gone through her faculty webpage. She had like, I think it was 44 citations on there. And they all had the word Aristotle. In the title, right. every single one. And she was like taken aback when I asked her because she said, oh, I'm not special. Like, I have to learn other things to teach undergrads. I'm not specialized. And I think it's really held me back. Yeah. And there was this like disappointment that that isn't, she didn't want to be invested in minutia when she got into that field. And I think a lot of other people, I included her in the book, but a lot of other professionals where we just got to talking about that personally, I didn't include them in the book, but there was this almost, um, this wasn't what they had wanted to do necessarily. I wouldn't say that that's not true for all of them, but mm-hmm. it was true for a lot of them. So how do we guard against going too far and thinking, I'm thinking of uh, this, there was a fellow on the Texas uh, school board uh, curriculum committee, probably. Uh, he was a dentist and he was a creationist. And one of the things he said was, because he wanted to keep evolution out of textbooks. Mm. And one of the things he said was, you know, we can't keep listening to these experts. Right. So how do we guard against the improper rejection of expertise? Right. No, that's a great question because that is absolutely not something uh, I advocate. And, and a lot of that, I think, chapter 10 deals kind of with that heavily when it, where it's it's actually looking at people who are the best at anticipating um, geopolitical events, basically. It's about this incredible 20-year study that shows the people who are best able to see what's coming. And it turns out that it's these people from the, like, even even forecasting, you know, kind of sensitive political events, these people who just have wide-ranging habits from the general public do better than analysts with access to classified material. And one of their most important personality traits is uh, scientific curiosity. That's actually like a construct that this this researcher uses. And, and the way they would study this was really neat. Like they would give them market research studies and things like that and sometimes embed some scientific content in there, maybe video, whatever. And then they would track how they followed up on it, like on their own time. Um, and the people who would explore information, even when it seemed to go against their beliefs, were the ones who ended up uh, coming to correct answers and were the ones who were, in fact, good at like predicting events in the world. And so I think we need specialists. We need them for sure. I don't think we're in danger of telling people that they're not specializing enough, though. Um, so I don't think we should equate the kinds of things I'm writing about with the idea that these that specialists don't create incredibly important knowledge that we should pay attention to and draw on and often synthesize. You know, one of the problems, I think, with a lot of the specialists that ha- that sometimes makes an opening for um, a dentist to be a creationist is there hasn't been good enough synthesis in many cases in the public. And now I think some scientists have realized that and are starting to take it on and, and diversifying their communication skills and the way they present things. And so I think we absolutely need what Freeman Dyson would call a healthy ecosystem of fro- visionary birds and focused frogs. We need both of those. And I definitely... Um, don't think the idea that we should all expand our range and and have broad interests should mean that it isn't important to have specialists um, creating new knowledge and and listening to them. It's just what I go through in the book is when that gives them certain types of insight and when it limits their insight. The bird-frog thing is the bird is uh, high up and has a broad view and the Mm -hmm. frog is down there, but uh, doesn't have a broad view but knows a whole hell of a lot about its little niche right down there. 
Uh, I'm looking in the book, in the back of the book here. You you end with your own sort of advice based on everything that you researched. Why don't Why don't you uh, share that? Well, I give a couple. I mean, the the single most important for me, and again, this is me who um, I was at a the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference recently, mm -hmm. and and one of my Former colleagues laughed at me because we went to pick up our speakers' badges, and mine was the only one that didn't have a job affiliation. It was just my name. Um, so I, I really don't know what I'm going to do next, but I feel a lot more comfortable about that than I did before the research that went into this book. I should interrupt with uh, this great joke by Paula Poundstone. Okay. She said, uh, you know, when, when adults say to little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's because they're still looking for ideas. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. Um, and so I think one important thing is not to feel behind, right? Not not to compare yourself to what other people are doing right now, but to compare yourself to yourself yesterday. So I love this sort of analogy to that I mentioned at the end of the book to Julius Caesar, who um, supposedly, uh, and there are multiple historical accounts, so there might be some truth into this, saw a, when he was a young man, saw a statue of Alexander and cried because he said in all, you know, he had conquered, by my age, he had conquered so many worlds and in all my time I've done nothing and pretty soon after that um Caesar was you know head of the Roman uh republic which he turned into a dictatorship uh and then was murdered by his own friends and so I think it's safe to say that like you know youth athletes who have highlight reels online he peaked early uh that it's not a trajectory necessarily and so I think one of the takeaways for me was from, again, this study in the book called The Dark Horse Project, that is, the people who find a place where they uniquely succeed and are, for, are fulfilled, it, always, it isn't always in that study just about making more money, take a short-term approach. They, they, like, totally ignore the graduation speech advice to, like, picture where you want to be in 20 years and what are the steps to get there. And what they do is they say, here's where I am right now. Here's something I want to learn. Here are the options in front of me. Which of these is appealing? And probably I'm going to change my mind again. And they, they zigzag and triangulate their way until they find something unique, usually that they never could have foreseen. But they really have to do this experimentation. Like We act as if this kind of experimentation is a luxury, whereas in fact, it is the only way to figure out what these your own hidden talents and your hidden interests and to, to merge domains. And so it's not a luxury. It's essential. And there's a good chance that just from an economic point of view, you will do better in the long run by checking out multiple fields and being able to synthesize different areas. Yeah, and, and again, we need specialists. And, and I go through this patent, this very interesting patent research in the book that shows um, we need specialists to, to make these like stepwise progression, but that the contributions of specialists have been declining somewhat in in technological patents. And the the individual who's studying this in the book thinks that's because their findings are so much more quickly communicated that you just don't need as many of them. You still need them, but A, there's so much knowledge that there's more opportunity by recombining things that are known in new ways, first of all. And second of all, because the knowledge is disseminated so quickly, you just don't need as many of them. So you still need them, but the contributions of people who are bridging domains are growing while the the, the contributions of the specialists, you, you just don't need quite as many. I think it's Casa de Val, Arturo Casa de Val, who you quote in your book, talking about um, the medical school curriculum. Mm -hmm. You know, change it. You don't 
don't memorize things that you're going to forget in two weeks. Spend a lot of time on that when we're all carrying around a repository of all of humanity's information in our pockets now. That's right. So learn how to learn how to learn, learn how to think rather than learn particular bits of information. And, and this, I think, is important because he said, you know, we've got the world's knowledge in our phone and nobody knows how to integrate it. And, and so he is now at Johns Hopkins at the School of Public Health starting a program that despecializes the education of grad students. So instead of getting right into the didactic information, they learn scientific thinking, research methods, you know, logic. So this something I thought very hard about putting in the book was I mentioned that I think I sort of committed statistical malpractice with my en route to my own master's degree at Columbia University. I didn't know at the time, but like many people who are get, getting caught up, I think, in parts of the replication crisis, I had not been taught how science should work. I had not been taught what, how, how to think about statistics. So I hit a button on a stat program, you know, ran through my data and found all these statistically significant findings that's still published in a journal. Only as a journalist writing about poor scientific research did I start to realize, wait, this is how scientific thinking is supposed to work, and that's not what I was doing. And apparently the committee who gave me a master's degree didn't realize that either, right? This is a huge problem, and Arturo was talking about this at a symposium on replication at Columbia University when I was in the audience. And Jeffrey Drazen, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, says to him, no, no, you can't, you can't add these classes about scientific thinking because it'll add too much time to the curriculum. And Arturo says, I'm not talking about adding. I'm talking about get rid of all that other stuff that they don't remember anyway and that even if they did, only two of them would be using and replace it with scientific thinking. And, and Drazen was down on that, but you know, I, I just saw a paper that showed one of the reasons Arturo wants to improve science is because he, he makes this sort of gallows humor science joke that the, the pace of retractions is accelerating more than the pace of new publications. So the whole body of scientific knowledge will be retracted if we continue on this pace. <laughs> and the New England Journal of Medicine is like way in the far right corner when it comes to retractions. So I think like they have a problem and should be very sensitive to this kind of thing, not making light of it. Let's talk a little bit, just because it's such a great story uh, about the 103-year-old woman, when mm. you wrote the book, she was only 101, mm. but she's still around and she's still imparting her wisdom. Yeah, this is a, one of my favorite characters I've ever written about, Frances Hesselbein, who uh, is 103 years old, and she took, she likes to say, I've only had four jobs, all president or CEO, and I never applied for one. She... Um, had done a whole bunch of, she grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, had done a whole bunch of stuff. She assisted her husband running kind of a photography business. And she had a habit of when people would sort of ask her to do a job, she would constantly say like, no. And then they would really ask her and she would say like, just for a little while. And that happened when she was asked to volunteer with a Girl Scouts troop that was going to be disbanded otherwise. She said, fine, six weeks, then you can get a real leader. A troop, one little troop. One little troop. And she ends up staying with them, you know, for years until they graduate high school, likes it. This keeps happening. People keep asking her, like, well, why don't you get a little more involved with Girl Scouts? She keeps saying, like, no, I only have a son. I don't know anything about little girls. What do I know? But she keeps saying, fine, just for a couple months. And eventually they start asking her, well, why don't you be, you know, like a regional director? And she's like, you know, how could I? She becomes you know, I think the first woman in her area to run a a, a United Way um, 
fundraising campaign and, and she keeps doing things. She keeps turning things down and then deciding to do them under pressure until finally she is asked to interview to be the new CEO of the Girl Scouts. And at this point, Girl Scouts is in huge trouble. They've had a massive drop in membership. Um, they seem antiquated because this is the 70s. They're right? antiquated. That's right. They are. They need to start teaching women, uh, preparing girls for college, you know, teaching them about sex and drugs and computers. And, and that, they're not doing that. They haven't changed. They're still doing like stereotypical stuff. That's right. You know, baking, homemaking stuff. Sewing, yeah. Right. And Francis says, absolutely not. The, the people who had been the CEOs of Girl Scouts before. So Francis at the time was one of about 350 regional directors, basically. That was her only credential. The women who had led, who had been CEOs of Girl Scouts before were like, you know, the uh, founding commander of the U.S. Coast Guard Reserve, Women's Reserve, and, uh, you know, a dean uh, who went to Harvard when she was, Radcliffe at the time, when, you know, when she was like 16 and had leadership positions all across industry, and Frances had been, you know, regional director of Girl Scouts. But her husband forces her, you know, pressures her to take the interview, says, go turn them down in person. And she goes, and since she doesn't plan on getting it, she, she just lays it out and is like, you got to change everything. It needs to start here. Um, and they invite her to be the CEO of the Girl Scouts, and she leads a complete turnaround that um, huge increase in membership, a huge increase in the number of volunteers they have. She says they need to what, – what, she uses this phrase – when they look at us, do they see themselves? And she says they've not grown their minority membership at all. So she throws out the single sacred handbook, commissions multiple different handbooks that target different ages in different parts of the country, and commissions research on messaging that will reach out to girls of different backgrounds. One of the beautiful ones that stuck in my mind is these these posters that appeal to indigenous girls that say, your, your names are on the rivers. And she says they better see pictures of people who look like them in the handbook. She faces a lot of resistance. Because people say, get the finances in order and then worry about diversity. And she says, diversity is the problem, so we'll work on that right now. And she basically saves the largest membership organization for girls and women um, in the world. And when she eventually uh, tries to retire, the great management guru, um, Peter Drucker, says that she should be the next CEO of GM. Um, but she doesn't want to do that. She retires, plans to go back to Pennsylvania and write a book, and gets a call the next morning um, from the insurance company Mutual of America saying, come see your office. She says, what are you talking about? And they've decided they just want her. She's never known what she was going to do before she got there anyway. So they say, we'll just give her an office and she'll figure something out. And today she's 103. And from that office, she's running the Francis Hesselbein uh, Leadership Institute. She's working five days a week at 103. And so when I went and asked her, I wanted to say, what lessons prepared you for leadership? Because she's, she's been a leadership professor at West Point and all these things. And she waves me off and goes like, D I never knew I was being prepared. Like nothing, nothing was planned. All she did was respond in the moment to what was needed and follow her interests at the moment. And that kind of short-term planning, basically, turns out to be um, indicative of people who tend to find fulfillment. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read the article, Does Birth Order Affect Personality? I'll have to ask my older brother and sister what they think. 
And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.